This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gab Fest Avatar, glorious or racist schlock edition. It's Wednesday, December 21st, 2022. On today's show, Avatar, The Way of Water. It's the sequel to the highest grosser of all time, 2009's Avatar. This once again uh, unites writer-director James Cameron with the splendors of CGI uh, to bring us an ecological parable. And, of course, a giant blockbuster. And then Harry and Meghan is the new Netflix streamer about the royal couple. Is it a documentary or a propagandistic vanity project? We will discuss. And finally, in the spirit of the GabFest trying new tech and being kind of clueless about it, we're going to try Lenza AI, the app that uses AI technology to send your likeness deep into the uncanny valley. Uh, joining me today is Julia Turner, the deputy managing editor of the LA Times. Hey, Julia. Hello, hello. And of course, Dana Stevens, uh, the film critic for Slate. Hey, Dana. Hey, Steve. I have to say, like, a lot of rich texts to play with today. I'm very psyched about all three of these topics. Shall we dig in? Shall we make a show? Yes, indeed. All right. Well, James Cameron, of course, he's the writer-director. Uh, he made uh, the Terminator series, beginning with Terminator, in my estimation, one of the truly great Hollywood movies ever made that launched Arnold. He later made Titanic, uh, I think, for a while. Owned the top all-time box office spot, uh, a whopping commercial success, and I think largely a critical one, too. Incredibly, he then topped himself. Uh, at the original Avatar, probable project in every way. It was pioneering in its use of technology and motion capture and CGI. It created this weird, uncanny humanoid race that a lot of people found like bizarrely off-putting, smarmy, creepy, I mean, all kinds of things. Um, And it was kind of an indictment of the entire human race in a way. Uh, And yet it became, it grossed $2 billion. It was unstoppable. Oppable commercially. It was the highest grossing movie until the last Avengers film, but then it knocked that off again last year due to a re-release in China. I mean, just this juggernaut. Um, and then nothing, right? I mean, there was this sort of odd period where, of course, a sequel. I mean, it, it, sequelization is is just flows as as naturally as water. And here it comes. Avatar, The Way of the Water, returns the actor, Sam Worthington, or his, like, weird hybridized, blue-eyed likeness as Jake Sully, the ex-jarhead, as he calls himself, a Marine who gets uh, through DNA and mind-melding, becomes a Navi tribesperson. He, of course, uh, at the end of the original Avatar, he's fallen in love, he stays behind, he starts a family, as we find out at the beginning of the sequel. Uh, The action here inaugurates with Sky People, a.k.a. us, the Earthlings, the white colonial invaders specifically from Earth, returning with a bounty on Jake Sully's head. Uh, In addition to returning Sam Worthington, we have Zoe Saldana as Natiri, who's now his wife. Why don't we listen to a clip? It comes from the trailer. Jake Sully is on the lam with his family. He knows there's a bounty on his head. So he's seeking refuge with a different tribe. These are not forests, but a people of the water. The first voice we're going to hear is of the very skeptical chieftain. Let's listen. Why do you come to us? I just want to keep my family safe. (laughs) 
treat them as our brothers and sisters. Teach them our ways. Keep up, Forest Boy! If you want to live here, you have to ride. Let's do it. Just breathe. Breathe. All right, Dana, let me start with you. This is, in one sense, a highly anticipated movie, and uh, it's getting interestingly mixed reactions. Tell me what you thought of it. I'm dying to know, actually. I mean, I think so much about this movie. My review of it was practically as outsized as the movie itself. I just couldn't stop. I mean, even just sort of getting through the story of a three-hour and ten-minute movie that takes place, you know, with these whatever various other genetically engineered bio humans fighting one another on another planet took a long time and I'm still kind of processing my feelings about Avatar but I have to say that in both cases both Avatar movies that is even though I spent large portions of the running time thinking boy this is weird and hokey and self-indulgent and corny and over the top the fact is that these movies are overwhelmingly beautiful and are this these sensory onslaughts that while you're experiencing them feel irresistible. In that sense, I guess they could be said to be like rides or like games or the various things they've been compared to that aren't regular narrative feature films. And it's just strange for me to have a movie that what I love about it is not the characters or the story or the dialogue, but somehow the um, the world, just the sensory world that it establishes. But I think that that has been true of both Avatar movies and all the more so of this one, both because of technical advances since the last one and just because of James Cameron's evident love for water and for the ocean. And, you know, there his his mm. biography starts to come in, too. And the fact that, you know, as is often written about in, in reviews of this new movie, that he has his own way of water mysticism, right? He constructed or had constructed this special one-person submarine so that he could descend the Mariana Trench, the deepest place in the ocean floor, and, you know, spent some of his earnings from the first Avatar doing actual real sea, real-world sea uh, exploration. And his passion for that and for marine life and his just kind of earnest, corny um, belief in in ocean environmentalism is, I think, a huge selling point for this movie. And we'll get to the whales, which I think are the best part of this movie, the strange whales of the planet Pandora. Uh, but yeah, I think that if you, if you enjoy a sensory enveloping experience in the theater, that you should peel away some of your cynicism and go see Avatar, because even though it is based on a previously existing property, and that property is, as you said, the highest grossing movie of all time, there's something almost indie about how original his vision is and how passionate he is about it. And there's nothing that feels phoned in or wrote about this movie. Um, I'll I'll stop there, but I have lots more to say in the course of this conversation. Interesting. Uh, Julia, nothing phoned in or wrote a rich and original vision uh, disguised as a giant blockbuster. What do you make of that? This movie really, really bummed me out. I don't Mm. know if it bummed me out. I, I, it is perhaps a victim of my expectations about my expectations, which maybe isn't James Cameron's fault, but I think, you know, his shtick, not just for me, is that he goes all in making something that people are like, really? You're going to do what? You know, people made fun of Titanic before it came out. Like, he spent how much? He sunk a ship and... But what? Uh, you know, people have been skeptical of his endeavors for a long time. And I appreciate 
his commitment to his vision and Titanic was an amazing spectacle and a great thing to watch. And I went into the first Avatar probably for this show in 2009 thinking, I don't want to see this and coming out thinking, whoa, that's not like anything I've ever seen before. And I remember seeing the trailer for this and thinking like, oh, damn it. I have no desire to see that. But I can tell from the crispness of the visuals that it's going to feel like a leap forward in filmmaking and remind me that so much of the CGI that we see in other films right now is not really groundbreaking or up to snuff and it's kind of filler. And then it just didn't look that new to me. Mm. And it also seemed like it had a real case of too big to edit syndrome. I mean, I'm, I'm going to, very, very mildly spoil. If you want to be truly unspoiled, you can you can skip this part. But it's it, it's really more just about the, the way this film fits into the hypothetical structure of the, you know, is it a trilogy or is it going to be five? Which I guess how many of us go pay and see this will determine. Um, but essentially, the whole movie is the beat where the warriors like I don't know if I should fight for justice. I just want to protect my family which usually is dispensed with in a like eight to 12 minute sequence in the first third of the film. And then the warrior is like, I better fight for justice. But this mm-hmm. whole three, <laughs> at three plus hour movie is him learning that one eight minute lesson. And then literally the last line of the movie is like, come on back for the sequel, which makes you feel like you've sat there for three yeah. hours to watch a trailer for a movie that's coming out in 2024. And I was furious coming out of it, just furious about how high on its own supply this movie seemed. Yeah, I. so here's how totally fresh I came to this uh, franchise is Saturday night, I think, uh, I uh, sat in front of a fireplace, flipped open my laptop and paid four bucks to Amazon Prime and watched Avatar for the first time. And within 10 seconds, I was like appropriately blown away from it, even by it, even at this late date. And part of the reason is the filmmaker I most admire of, of the many James Camerons we've encountered over the 20, 30 years he's been making pictures remains the first Terminator film, which I just think is a brilliant genre and action picture. And then the repurposing of Arnold as a hero and the second one is brilliantly done. I think that is a great blockbuster. Um, I think there was so much cleverness uh, in the screenwriting of both of those movies. Um, I I, I really admire Cameron for them. And I was shocked to discover that, that that filmmaker, who I thought really disappeared in the overblown, sickly idiocy of Titanic, it kind of reappeared in Avatar because that movie is fascinatingly about, you know, it's the relationship between this jarhead, right? I mean, I get I get all the problems with it and we'll get to those, but, but just as a genre conceit that you're beaming this guy's consciousness into this form and how that plays out simply as a suspense MacGuffin um, and a sci-fi MacGuffin was really well done. And I was like, okay, I'm in the presence of the master that I originally fell in love with, with that Terminator movie. And so that I just was, you know, now all of the problems immediately hit you, right? I was like, at the same time, I was admiring the clockwork rhythms of a terrific and original blockbuster. I was also, it's like, is this 
the most racist movie or the most woke movie I've ever seen? Or is it like a cake and eat it to cop out extravaganza? I, I just couldn't, I couldn't quite make up my mind. And part of it was, it's sort of trying to get at the relationship between toxic masculinity and a dying planet, right? And colonialism. And at least it's trying to bring those, heave those into the consciousness of your average blockbuster ticket buyer. Um, and then it's in this film that it, that balance, Dana, for me was totally lost between the sort of genre tightness and brilliance of it and originality of it with this larger message. And all of a sudden, because what are the two worst refuges you can take once you've decided to think critically about toxic masculinity colonial exploitation and ecological disaster, right? The white savior complex is the perpetual danger. I mean, he is a white male filmmaker and Gaia woo, for lack of a better expression, the idea that there's, I mean, and of course these two things are bound up in one another, the idea that these native people are, exist in a primitive state and therefore pre-technological state and therefore are somehow closer to the, the Gaia mind, the networked Gaia intelligence of the um, holistic ecosystem, right? The whole ecology of the planet, right? Which is in its way a beautiful idea, but it's entirely a white colonial projection onto non-European, non-industrial peoples. And in this one, I just thought it it really, really became pompous and the very, in some ways, the very thing that it's attempting to deconstruct and critique. Anyway, Dana, defend this movie. I mean, I, I'll, well, one thing I will say is that I think if that critique can be made, the, um, you know, the critique that the movie itself is an exercise in colonialism, it can be made every bit as much of the first as of the second. And maybe yes. more so because the, the Sam agree. Worthington's character, Jake Scully, is at this point has fully uh, incorporated himself into his avatar body, right? I mean, he can't really be seen as a white savior anymore because now he's a blue people among the other blue people who meet up with the teal people. I mean, obviously race is in a strange area of suspension when you're talking about this movie and it all becomes very allegorical and vague. But I don't know that I have a great defense of this movie. I mean, I'm not, I'm not defending it necessarily on moral grounds. I'm saying that it's, it's, I understand why these movies are enormously popular spectacles because they're incredibly effective pieces of movie making. And it sounds like Julia didn't experience that at all, that she did experience in a state of boredom and irritation. I went in thinking, please, God, let this not feel three hours and 10 minutes long. And in some stretches, it did. But I felt that it brought me enough, that it brought me enough kind of visual wonders and the undersea sequences and uh, and just a sense of, of vastness and newness in the space it was exploring that I was willing to forgive it a lot. In fact, my favorite stretches were the ones where the least was happening. You know, you mm. could argue that there are some very narratively static stretches where the, the teen navvies are exploring the ocean and getting to know the whale, who I continue to think is the, the coolest character, the psychic whale. Um, but... But those were my favorite. You know, those were the sort of um, National Geographic documentary of a non-existent planet portion of the movie, which I felt was, you know, what I would be willing to, to throw down my money for. I honestly think if it had stuck the landing better and had any kind of integrity as the end of its own movie, instead of having this just incredibly cheese ball throw to the next movie, which made it feel so indulgent i might have been able to appreciate it as a as an object with its own integrity but i don't know i mean 
have you watched those nature documentaries that they can make these days? Like the real ocean is pretty fucking cool to look at. And I know. And I also have to ask you guys, this was obviously a key part of the first film because our protagonist falls in love with a beautiful Navi woman. And isn't it convenient that these aliens just kind of look like extremely long and lithe uh, and lissom, like hot, you know, humans, but blue. Um, and gendered, by the way. I mean, like, you know, very distinctly gendered, unless I miss something. No, they're incredibly gendered. They have fucking boobs. They have human <laughs> boobs. And the amount, I, I just would like a dollar amount of how much was spent on determining exactly which, like, loose and ever so slightly yes. slack tendrils of seaweed and, you know, forest detritus become the, like, half bikini tops of these like small boobed lissom like it's pervy the movie seems pervy about the women in it it's am pervy. i just a perv for it's thinking really that I, they're they're just like constantly and there's something about the way that they design the bikini tops that is like very 70s swimsuit issue like the elastic isn't good yet you know it's like the bo- whole it's bo Derek. <laughs> I mean, I I, so, I have to say, I mean, yeah. a, a part of me, I like you guys, we just talked about Top Gun Maverick early this year. You've never seen a blockbuster before that tries to have sex appeal and is cheesy about it. Isn't that part of what makes these movies kind of, I mean, as I said, I watched the entire movie with my eyes rolling, but at the same time, the rolling eyes kept returning to the image on screen and wanting to continue watching it. I am not being made to feel pervy for some kind of like interspecies animal uh, creature. Like, yes, it feels less pervy. Like, I'm allowed to lust after a human body. <laughs> it feels weird to be well, made combi- to lust after an animal, an animal creature. And combined well, but- with the dangers of the white colonial male gaze, right? It's like, and the primitivism and the all of it. It's like, it is really dangerous, Rousseau territory it's like but more backwards than backwards almost i mean it's it's like i do think there's a broader gender issue here like they're these like feral mama she cats like the men in the movie are like let's think about the war strategy and does it make sense to join forces with this tribe you know they're like the logical people and then the female leads are constantly just like Literally having cat fights, they hiss at each other they in antagonism, and oh, then God. they cannot be held back when they when they're like mama bear instinct. It, it, oh, it's this the, movie it's infuriated the, me, infuriated me, and and the only the only glimmer of delight in it is that there is a long sequence on a whaling boat that is intended to establish like the mechanisms of aggression of mm. the sky people. And the mechanisms of defense of the whales and the humans. And there is a ever so slight bit of self-awareness in the kind of like Ahab monomaniacal white Mm -hmm. whale chasing. I'm going to just keep fucking making movies about these Navi for the rest of my goddamn life-ness of James Cameron and having a whaling boat sequence. And that is the one thing I loved about the movie. And I will leave it there. All right. So much to say about this movie. And we'd love to hear your side of it too if you've seen it and you have an opinion please shoot us an email on uh, either of the avatar movies maybe especially this this latter one that's just come out let us know uh, all right let's move on okay before we go any further this is typically where we discuss business dana what um what do we have this week 
Stephen, we have but one item of business this week, and that is to tell you about today's Slate Plus segment. This week, we're answering a question from a listener named Matt, who says that he loves having a membership at a local museum where he can revisit his favorite pieces over and over. We'll read his whole question out loud in the Plus segment. He had some great questions about visiting works of art and whether we have works of art in museums or elsewhere that we like to revisit over and over, sort of local friends in the visual art world. So we'll do our best to answer that question in this week's Slate Plus segment. If you're a Slate Plus member, you can hear that at the end of this show. And if you're not a Slate Plus member, you can sign up today at slate.com slash culture plus. Okay, Steve, what's next? All right. Well, Harry and Meghan is the new streaming show on Netflix. It's a multi-part documentary about Megxit told entirely from the point of view of Harry and Meghan, the Duke of Sussex, of course, and the American TV actress, He married, and their melodrama is that of a couple wishing to flee their prison from the vultures known as the pap, the paparazzi, who hound them everywhere, the mafiosi known as the royal family, um, and the constraints of silence and decorum imposed upon them by all the above. Uh, The show's been criticized for being told entirely from their perspective. There are, of course, executive producers on it. In the clip we're about to hear, You'll hear from both of them. They're explaining, Harry and Meghan, why they've decided to make this series. Let's listen. This is a great love story. And the craziest thing is that I think this love story is only just getting started. You know, she sacrificed everything that she ever knew, the freedom that she had, to join me in my world. And then... Pretty soon after that, I end up sacrificing everything that I know to join her in her world. I'm not going to say that it's comfortable, but when you feel like people haven't gotten any sense of who you are for so long, it's really nice to just be able to have the opportunity to let people have a bit more of a glimpse into what's happened and, and also who we are. Mm, okay, Julia, let me start with you. I sort of somewhat downplayed it in my intros. How much backlash this documentary has inspired most of the stuff printed about it? Critics have come in hard. They find it mawkish, self-serving, on and on. What did you make of it? I'm very curious. Oh, I ate it up. I mean, <laughs> it's fun to get the inside view of a tabloid shitstorm. And it's fun to tangle with, you know, a a version of their story that is very much theirs. Like all of their friends come in and sit down and describe it. They make pretty serious accusations against Will, against Charles. And the documentary has a blanket. The royals refuse to comment. You know, it's, it is propaganda. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a lengthy propaganda doc that is their view of their story. Um, But I found it both revealing and moving. I mean, people can reveal themselves in the stories they are intentionally shaping and trying to tell just as much as they can be revealed by, you know, a real, a rigorous, um, more credible journalistic endeavor. And, you know, (laughs) I mean, there's, there's definitely an irony to it of, of, producing your multi multi part Netflix doc and being like it is so awful how much attention people were paying to us if they would just stop looking at us <laughs> like uh guys 
<laughs> well, you know, that that obvious ridiculousness um, also kind of undermines the seriousness of the endeavor. But, you know, I, I found it moving to hear with more detail than in the Oprah interview, both the promise of um, of Megan as a royal and what it might mean about the evolution of that institution and its representation, its relationship to people of color within the British Commonwealth countries and, um, you know, just relationship to modern womanhood uh, and, and moving. I mean, it, you know, I guess you can go tiny violins on them, but it does seem like it was super hard and it's interesting to hear them processing it. Mm. Dana did a tiny violin string section start going in your head while you watched this. Did you feel the slight tingle of nausea in the back of your throat? Did you eat it up with a spoon? Where, where'd you land on this? I mean, I know I feel like I have to refer to our earlier segment on Avatar and push back on <laughs> anyone saying they were bored with the three hours and 10 minutes of underwater exploration, yet, yet oh so anxious to sit down and watch six hours of unbelievably padded WhatsApp exchanges between Harry and Meghan. I mean, here, I'll just lay my cards on the line. Usually when we vote on a topic for this show, my attitude is sort of like, oh, I'm open to persuasion. Let's talk about all these things seem interesting. I don't know. This week, I... I seem to remember clearly saying, my vote is no. I do not want to talk about Harry and Meghan. I mean, for God's sake, when the Queen died earlier this year, it was months. I feel like it was six weeks of coverage of the Royals, mm. and I just have nothing left to say. And I, fe- I felt so hard that this was a piece of self-propaganda. Yes, of course, their story is is interesting. Not every romance has the angle of, you know, a, a prince courting this, you know, American actress who then leave the royalty. But we, we as a culture and we as a podcast mm. have talked about it so much that the I, I resented every moment that they wanted to capture more of my attention for what for the vast majority of the running time is a pretty banal love story like the most of the first episode is about their first date for god's sake (laughs) just the pace at which it moves is absolutely glacial so although there are some insights here and there about you know genuine trauma that they experienced and you know i'm not trying to diminish how painful it must have been, especially for Megan to be under the eye of the British media and the object of all of this racism directed toward her and her family. That stuff is legitimately awful. But a part of me wants to say, we know, you know, we know ever since Diana's death more than 30 years ago, that this, you know, fishbowl paparazzi nightmare is how the royalty works. And like, I don't know, I just feel like I've said all I have to say about these folks and I wish them well in their, you know, Oprah rose tinted (laughs) life, but enough already. Dana, we here at the Gab Fest do not air our dirty laundry in public. (laughs) If you had problems with the selection of the topic, there were other avenues other than a hot mic. In which to deal with it. All right, Steve, you got You got to break the tie. You were a surprising vote for discussing this in uh, the previously mentioned uh, programming discussion. So uh, tell us why you were interested and what you made of it. I was surprised at how everything I said virtually word for word about Avatar could transfer seamlessly to our second segment and this Harry and Meghan documentary. I mean, all of the ambivalences about 
you know, is this deconstructing something that I legitimately hate on the part of someone who also legitimately hates it, but who is also that thing? And therefore, maybe they're having their cake and eating it too. And in fact, isn't this just the colonialism by another name? Ah, Like my brain was sort of once again exploding between several possible alternatives. I mean, certainly, certainly, it's it's it totally it, it is maudlin and self-serving, narcissistic. I mean, it's all the things that people have said negatively about it. I think it's also all the things that people have said sympathetically about it, which is that they they whatever else is true, they exist at the center of this terrifying nucleus. It killed his mother. We can never ever ever set that aside when trying to understand what he personally is going through. The human story at the center of this is that. His mother was destroyed by a combination of the British tabloid press and the whopping hypocrisies and secrets of the lies of the royal family. And he has every noble motivation of simple self-preservation, of self-indignity to want to exit that completely. And furthermore, he has now married someone who was literally called the people princess, which was wrung around his mother's neck. Um, I mean, the simultaneous exaltation and destruction, right, now heightened by race and Americanness and, and Hollywood and all of that. I mean, it's just, I, it, that is a human story for which I feel an enormous amount of sympathy. Secondly, there is some leg showing here in the sense of meaningful, I mean, that's a sexist term, but you understand what I'm saying. There's like, you know, there's some full Monty. I don't know, why, why am I turning this into a fucking strip show? There's, there's some substance to what's being revealed about what he calls a dirty game in episode four, which is where I found the rubber really hit the road. The royal family Mm -hmm. is in an active dance with the tabloid media it pretends to hate. They um, leak strategically, they plant stories strategically, and they do it, and and it's part of a a horse trading operation, secret, semi-secret, covert horse trading operation um, that goes on, that's also an internecine battle between separate quote-unquote comms offices, communication offices that separate members of the royal families have that are playing off against one another. So if they want to bury something, according at least to Harry, but I find this entirely plausible about, you know, a certain member of the royal family, they trade dirt, you know, that they have on another member of the royal family. And so one gets at least, I think, a fuller picture of how uh, the royal family are, are co-equals and co-perpetrators in this awful game that chewed up and spat out Diana. The question is, is this documentary itself just another chess move? Is Megxit just another chess move in some sense? Um, So I break the tie this way. You know, it's still a tie. Sorry. After penalty kicks, we're still tied. Look, if they, obviously they are not healed, right? Like there's, there's many scenes of them doing guided meditations and talking about their therapist and talking about their mental health. I mean, it, you know, t- talking about Megan's uh, suicidal ideations and, and deep, deep depression as she was being <clears throat> hounded um, in, in, in racist ways by the British press. Um, but there is a desire here to tell their side of the story and to have the last word, which is both very human and understandable, and also not, you know, like I wish for them a world where they actually don't care and they're not trying to mm. tell us their story and they yeah. can just enjoy their beautiful love story. You know, they're very, they seem very 
intent on being each other's perfect match, which given everything they both have sacrificed in order to be together, no wonder that's their narrative about themselves. Um, and they, they, and it doesn't feel constructed and it doesn't feel forced. They do seem genuinely quite smitten with each other, which I guess they would in the documentary that they agreed to participate in and share all those um, riveting WhatsApp exchanges <laughs> for. But... You know, it, it's funny because they seem, they don't seem over it. They seem nostalgic. You know, there's the, there's a whole episode where they explain what good royals they could have been, right? Just how, how wonderful it was for the world to have this more modern princess who was more multicultural and more open to evolving how to think about the idea of Britain. Um, and I don't know, man, they should get over that too. Like just, <laughs> I just, I wish them... I wish them like the next few cycles in their in their processing, and I I have a feeling this w- will not be the last topics call on which we debate whether we should engage with some he- Mer- Megan and Harryana. And uh, Dana, I will try to defer to you next time in the interest of leaving them the <laughs> yeah, hell they, alone. Yeah, they might they might sneeze again, and then we'll have to do another segment. <laughs> All right, Dana, I'll let you get the last jab to the eye there. Um, well done. All right, well. Uh, Shoot us an email if you uh, see fit about the Harry and Meghan documentary now streaming on Netflix. Let's uh, let's move on. All right. Lens AI is an app that allows you, what you do is you basically take a selfie and you upload it to Lenza. And then an artificial intelligence image generator uses AI woo-woo to convert it into a kind of magic avatar or, you know, a digitally enhanced um, photo uh, through the powers of uh, digital morphology. Uh, Dana, let me start with you. Like many times over the course of the history of this show, the three of us have trifled with technology only to walk away baffled. But this one's kind of weird and funny. What, uh, what's going on here? I mean, there's a lot to talk about here beyond just how cool it is to generate a very flattering portrait of yourself. But on a most on the most basic level, I think the popularity of this app, which I think was the number one, you know, has just been at the very top of, of sales in the Apple App Store since last month when it was released. I think a huge part of that popularity is just that, you know, who doesn't want some sort of iridescent fairy anime version of themselves, you know, to, to pop into their little avatar squares on their various social medias. Um, there's one thing that's, I think, slightly inaccurate about the way you describe the way Lenza works. And I would love to know more technically about how this happens. But it isn't just one-to-one picture conversion, right? You don't just submit a picture and get a sort of glow-up version of that picture. You have to submit at least 10, I believe it is. And so there's a yeah. kind of composite face that's happening that then gets cast into all these different, you know, scenarios. Like you've got a Santa hat on, you know, and you're from a slightly different angle. And it's not necessarily reproducing the pose that you sent as much as, no, 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 I guess, right. learning the architecture of your face and casting it in these these different scenarios. And uh, this is not probably something that I would have done were we not talking about it for this segment, but I was pleased to have an excuse to do it because it's fun both to um, to see what the, the AI does with that information, that data about your face, and to kind of, you know, experience yourself as a fantasy anime avatar, which as a person who doesn't do gaming or role-playing games or, you know, or watch a lot of anime, that's not a fantasy space that I usually inhabit. And uh, and it was it was really a window onto the appeal of kind of digital cosplay for me. 
But since we were just talking about the um, what was to Julia the the creepiness of the uh, the avatars, the the blue people in Avatar, and the way that they both do and don't resemble human bodies and seem to be sort of you know lengthened and lysomized and beautified, um, there's something of that going on with the Lenza app as well. I mean, I would not personally actually put one of these extremely flattering pictures of myself on a social media platform. I might share them with friends uh, but or put them in some sort of jokey Christmas card or something like that. But I would not want to be represented by this app because of what it represents for art and artists. I actually, and this is a somewhat unusual for GabFest Topics, heard some people talking about this on the train the other day. A bunch of young women across from me on the subway were talking about I believe it was Lenza. They were talking about a popular new AI app and and the portraits it generated. And uh, even though they were much more of the kind of selfie generation than I am, all of them to a one were saying, oh, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't want to do it because I don't like what it does to artists and to art. And the fact that it is, you know, essentially sort of at least theoretically putting actual portrait painters out of work because you've got an app to do it for you. Yeah, I mean, I think the objection is that... um you know, what, what the app is doing is not photoshopping your pictures. It's like ingesting your photos, learning your face, and then drawing your face in a number of styles based on what it's learned about those styles. But there's this other invisible part of its technology where just as it is ingesting the 12 or 20 photos you upload, it's ingesting like cosmic style art or stylish style art. And, you know, I think the critique is that there's not a ton of transparency in the app about whose art was ingested to teach the AI to make you look like a fairy princess or make you look like an anime figure or, you know, give you a a, a glass of pop art. Um, And I think the presumption, assumption, accusation, criticism is that there's a lot of uncompensated artists who are on the, you know, whose work was sort of fed into the chipper of this app and then is spit back out at us looking like Santa. In one case, for me, Santa with two pom-poms and slightly asymmetrical eyes. So, um, Steve... What what did Lenza do to you? Can we can we talk about some of your portraiture? Well, absolutely, we can. I mean, it's hard to say because did I fool AI? Am I like did I just like beat deep blue at chess? Because I fed it in the initial round of ten that they're going to then like kind of you know shoot through the supercomputing program. Those are all supposed to be of me, correct? Those initial first 10 in order for them to have multiple data points. Well, those, I believe, initial 10 were photos of both me and my daughters because, of course, I didn't grok the concept of the basic (laughs) concept of the app. And we have similar enough facial structures that it it seems to have amalgamated all of us. So I, I have some... There are some other ones here in which I'm gendered completely differently. And here's one that's just me and my daughter. I'm about to add one that's just me and my daughter <laughs> turn into this wonderful hybrid. <laughs> that explains, Steve, why your pictures look far less like you than Julia's and mine look like me. I mean, ours are kind of absurdly flattering in the style that I was talking about, but our facial features are recognizable, whereas you are just this very odd figure from like a Soviet propaganda poster. 
<laughs> You're some sort right. of just square-jawed space right. gazer who doesn't really resemble you I mean, at all. Don't be afraid to say it. It's not that I'm just like 50% handsomer in these. I'm like 400,000% hotter in these photos than well, I am in real life. I don't know, though. I do think that the it rejects a bunch of your photos if they're not appropriate. So yeah. it may have rejected... I, I don't know. I, I'm not and, sure it would actually let you combine people. So fair maybe enough, this is just how handsome Steve really is. I think it's not working from enough data of Steve faces because another feature of Steve's photos on here is that they look very different from each other. I would never yeah. think that they were all AIs of the same person, whereas there's a consistency in mine and Julia's. So that makes me want to experiment with the app and see what happens when you give it more rather than fewer pictures, try it with different people, etc. I mean, I will say that it's very fun to play with. Remember when we did that app that changed your age and your gender presentation and we were sort of looking mm-hmm. at you know what our, our our selfies would look like as an older person or a child or the opposite gender um, this is a little bit similar to that right it's just a it's a goofy tool to play with and i guess i don't really see the harm in that unless it is in fact directly stealing from from people's art and i don't quite understand how that works julia i mean would it be actually going out into the internet and fishing up portraits of individual people? How does that help it draw your portrait? I don't know the answer to that question. Um, I'm not sure. I don't think Lenza has really revealed the answer to that question. But I think it is learning what are the types of things that appear in quote unquote cosmic art styles. Um, And you get golden halos and weird gems and kind of stars and sparkles in the background. And um, you know, I, 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 it's, I'm speculating, but that's, that is the critique is that it's sort of absorbing the work of actual artists in teaching its computer to produce art in different styles. Um, I do think there are some gender issues here. So I did also do one for my husband and the options that, so the options that I got as a woman submitting were, Stylish, cosmic, uh, anime, kawaii, um, you know, there were sort of a bunch of holiday spirit. And my husband got a number of the same ones, but he also got a couple that I did not get. He got Rockstar, didn't get Rockstar, and he got Superhero, didn't get Superhero. Um, He also got Astronaut, I didn't get Astronaut, and he got Adventure, I didn't get Adventure. And it just, the, the, it made me want to put myself in again and stipulate my gender as male and see what happened. But, you know, it, it, just as the fluttering seaweed bikinis uh, seemed a little pervy and weird and revealing of gender woes, um, you know, there's some kind of classically, almost boringly uh, irritating gender assumptions here. Maybe it's just random. I, d- I only did a couple of these. So maybe women get rock star a couple sometimes. Dana, were you made a rock star? an adventurer, an astronaut, or a superhero in your pack? Definitely not astronaut. I can't remember what they named these different styles, but I think I did get something that's that's along the lines of a sort of Pat Benatar-esque version of me, so that must be my rock star avatar. I kind of want to recast this again as no gender. There's a possibility of not making the choice, male or mm. female, and see what presentations it presents you with then. I, I think the real indicator here and the thing that we'll be coming back to is less what does your avatar look like and more how do these tools get used in the production of the art that we consume or the 
art that we produce um, and the, the ways in which computers can make art and can assist in making art, I think are going to create questions for critics like us and creators all around the world you know, this is going to be an animating discussion of the next decade. I mean, we just ran a piece in the LA Times this week about this new technology that helps in film editing, you know, for years and years and years, if you don't quite have the actor saying the right face while they say the right thing, um, you got to cut around it or you got to cut away or suddenly you're looking at a potted plant while someone comes in and, and ADR is the line that you need. And, and if you get a little savvy about filmmaking and, television making, you can begin to see where they've had to like cut in somebody's voice after the fact saying the thing that makes the whole scene make sense. And you can sometimes even hear the slightly different quality of the audio in that if, if they're not careful. And there is this new computer technology that essentially deep fakes those moments, takes what you know about the actors and takes the audio you've got and makes it so that you don't have to cut away because you can essentially CGI the actor into saying the thing that you wanted them to say in the ADR. And the folks who are working with this tool are delighted by it. And it solves a lot of problems in the editing room. Uh, how actors feel is more complicated and what it suggests about how films will get made next is kind of wide open country and a little bit confusing. Mm, all right, well, we'll keep, an eye on all of the above. I agree. Like Harry and Megan, it's one of those subjects we're inevitably going to return to. Um, all right. Well, uh, Lenza AI, check it out. Um, it, we had fun with it, if nothing else. Let's move on. All right. Now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse Dana. What, uh, what do you have? Stephen, I'm going to give a local endorsement, but not for the location in which I live, for the one where I was visiting last week, which was Berkeley, California, my longtime home where I went to grad school. There's a place there I've wanted to visit for years with a friend, and first because of not being able to strike the hours when it was open, and then because of COVID and not traveling. It's been actual probable five years that I've been trying to visit this place in Berkeley with a good friend. We finally made it. And it's such a cool place. I just have to endorse it and hope that some people, Bay Area listeners or people who are visiting the Bay Area will visit it. It's called the Aftel Archive of Curious Scents. And it's a little tiny perfume museum in, in North Berkeley. It's very close to Chez Panisse, actually. So if you wanted to have a very luxurious afternoon, you could have lunch there and then waft over to the perfume archive. It's run by this woman, Mandy Aftel, who is a perfumier and a writer on scent. She's written, I think, five books about the history and creation of fragrance. And the entire thing. It's just one room, one narrow room that is really her collection, her family's private collection of perfume-related artifacts and essences. So there are things like uh, a little case of ambergris chunks, you know, from various whales over the centuries. There's lots of samples of things to to smell and, and take away samples of with you. There are, you know, taxidermied civet cats and beavers and other um, animals that have lent their essences to perfume over the decades. And most of all, there's just Mandy Eftel, who is this walking archive on the history of scent. And you can sort of ask her anything about this, this stuff in her collection, which also includes, this was really exciting for me for non-perfume related reasons, the oldest book I've ever touched, a, a 
an herbalist manual from England from 1595 that's just right there with a magnifying glass. And if you put a pair of gloves on, you can look through the book and handle it. And that was really exciting. Anyway, you have to make a, a reservation at this place and you know tell them exactly when you're coming. Um, but it is so, so worth the price of admission to spend an afternoon at the Aftel Archive of Curious Scents in Berkeley. Oh, that sounds amazing. Uh, Julia, what do you have? Um, I am going to endorse an Instagram comedian called Front Porch Dad. Um, he does these little videos in which he imitates the banal speech of essentially suburban parents, of which I am now one, um, doing very precise, mundane things. It's like, so so each video is maybe like a minute and it's a quick cut of him walking around and talking and saying the kinds of banal things that people say in certain very specific conversations. So passing people on hikes, and it just imitates like the things you say, getting close to the summit, looking sweaty, beautiful day. Nice backpack. You had the right idea. Well, I'm jealous. You're already on the way down. <laughs> My favorite is people talking about changes they would make to random houses. And it just imagines you like on a walk around your cul-de-sac be- being like, you know, if you took down that wall, like they kind of put a nice tree in this corner. Gosh, you could turn this whole back house into a rental. String lights. Seems like a lot of wasted space. Shame they're not using that little front porch area. I would have to do something with this. There's something about the ear that he has and the observation that he has of sort of like filler talk, nothing talk um, that I haven't quite seen scrutinized in this way. And it just makes me laugh. It's like a very specific, funny parody that is both like knowing and critical, but also kind of appreciative. Like there's a warmth to it. I don't know. These are these are making me laugh and making comedy out of life's conversational filler in uh, a very sharply observed way. So it's Front Porch Dad. I've been following him on Instagram. I think he puts them all over. I think they're on TikTok and Twitter and Facebook and wherever the heck you want to watch a guy making internet comedy. Um, But I would particularly point you to people talking about changes they would make to random houses. That sounds great. I cannot wait to check it out. All right. My endorsement is sort of a follow-up on a segment we did on um, the documentary about Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward, which was based on a lot of archival material. But one source was this extraordinary trove of interviews that Newman had given to the screenwriter Stuart Stern with an eye towards uh, compiling it into a really definitive biography. It never got written. Those documents disappeared. They were recently discovered by a family member in an attic or a garage or something. And they've now been compiled and published as a book. Um, This is uh, something separate from the documentary made by the actor Ethan Hawke that we discussed. Um, There's a review of the book by Simon Callow, the English actor and writer um, and uh, thespian and just all around sort of renaissance man. I mean, he's really a remarkable writer of uh, review essays, among many other things. This is a beautifully done review essay called Old Blue Eyes by Simon Callow in the New York Review of Books. And I'm not going to quote Callow's writing, which is extraordinary, but two things that he quotes give some of its flavor that I thought was wonderful because sort of trying to get at this man who is mysterious both as a human being, he claims over and over again and very eloquently in these interviews how he's such a mystery to himself and, and, and trying to get at why, but also as an as a artist and as a performer and as an actor. I mean, and the confusion Callow gets at so deftly and so brilliant, he quotes 
Martin Scorsese, who when asked about Newman said, the history of movies without Paul Newman, question mark, it's unthinkable. His presence, his beauty, his physical eloquence, the emotional complexity he could conjure up and transmit through his acting in so many movies, where would we be without him? Wonderful judgment and in some ways definitive to be followed by David Thompson, the wonderful English film critic. I mean, an incredible film historian and critic. Dana, I'm sure you're familiar with his work, very familiar with his work. Yeah, yeah, um, I know, and I know him personally too. He's, he's a great critic. He is really a, an astonishing critic. His judgment on Newman is, he seems to me an uneasy, self-regarding personality as if handsomeness had left him guilty, just as his habitation of rugged, quote-unquote, wild ones was never totally convincing, so too his quote-unquote straight parts seem neutered and derivative. And what's funny is that both of those judgments are true in some sense. I mean, you can find elements of any one of his performances and certainly over the range, magnificent range of performances he gave, you can find evidence for both judgments. And Callow just writes a perfectly calibrated, beautifully written piece of criticism trying to kind of square these and come to a really deep, interesting, mature understanding of this, you know, sort of outrageously beautiful uh, golden age of Hollywood movie star. It's just a wonderful review essay. I couldn't have admired it more. I envied every sentence and wish I'd written them myself. So check it out. Old Blue Eyes, New York Review of Books by Simon Callow. Julia, thank you so much. That was really fun. Thank you. Dana, as always, a total pleasure. Yes, it was a joy. Thanks, Stephen. You will find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page. That's slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com. We have a lot of stuff. Target rich environment this week. Uh, complaints, uh, uh, seconding opinions, refuting them. We love it. Uh, our introductory music is by the composer Nicholas Bertel. Our production assistant is Jessica Balderrama. Our producer is Cameron Drews. For Dana Stevens and Julia Turner. I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We will see you soon. Hello and welcome to the Slat Plus segment of the Slate Culture Gab Fest. Today, we take a listener question from Matt Swetnam. He writes, I love visiting museums and galleries while traveling, but I also love having a membership at a local museum where you can revisit favorite pieces on visit after visit. Are there any works of art that you have this relationship with? And he goes on to describe uh, visiting the Fog Museum at Harvard on a recurring basis at one point in his life to, to visit uh, a Brancusi and an Alberto Burri piece. So um, I'm very curious about this. And I'll start with you, Steve, because when I came and visited you last or at least recently, uh, you took me on one of your favorite walks and your favorite walk from your front door was through an amazing sculpture garden that's tucked away quite near to you. Perhaps I'm misremembering the geography exactly, but um, which had some memorable art. So I'm curious, are there works of art that you visit regularly near you that are or are not in that specific sculpture garden? Yeah. I mean, what's so funny about that, Julia, is that this I thought was a marvelous question, right? And uh, I immediately thought of uh, two or three 
things and then um, and didn't think of that, right? So, so that's, a, and that gets at the essence of the question, right? This sculpture park that's just right there, it is, as you remember correctly, like a short walk through a set of woods behind my house over a little country lane, crossing a little country lane, and there you are, you're in the sculpture park. And there are some really extraordinary works. The one that's become most sort of famous internationally for what it's worth is is a kind of rotating house that, that's kind of up on a single pole um, and and then kind of it rotates with the wind and it's livable. It has a compostable toilet, a shower, and the two people who designed it, one an artist and one an architect, can live in it, but only, and this is the wonderful part of the concept, I think, in addition to them just being on display and kind of rotating with the wind, is they need to be equidistant from the center point of the house in order for the house to balance or the house loses balance. So their movements have to mirror one another and be coordinated. And they occupy it for you know 48 hours a season maybe and people can come and see them. But the rest of the time you can just go and you're not supposed to, but if you jump up and kind of angle it correctly, you can kind of get the thing rotating. Shh, don't tell anyone I used to do that, but walk the old Labradoodle by it dozens of times. But that's the essence of the question is it's like, there are things that we see every day and maybe extraordinary, be- extraordinarily beautiful like facts of nature. And it's only when someone visits us that we see them again with fresh eyes, right? They've almost disappeared into the sort of landscape of our own consciousness. Um, and we just don't see them anymore. And this is, and then there are works of art which demand a very specific, or in theory demand a highly specific mode of contemplative um, att- attentiveness, right? Con- attention or concentration, right? There's, there's with the same, you're supposed to honor the deliberation with which the thing was made in the deliberation with which you look at it or consume it in theory. And then there's this kind of weird thing between the two of those, you know, works of art or nature or whatever that are just kind of, they're striking um, and like art purposeful, but they occupy the furniture of your daily existence. And that was one, but it was so absorbed into walking my freaking Labradoodle, right, that I just didn't even think of it as an answer. In fact, what I thought of was something that I see only intermittently with the Clark Museum as a Renoir painting uh, of onions, which is just one of my favorite paintings, only, I think, because I see it Wait. regularly. Steve, that's my dad's favorite painting. <gasps> You're kidding Oh my God! My I dad love... is obsessed. Was obsessed with that painting. Loved that painting. Oh, I'm obsessed with it too. And the thing is, you walk into that room, and your eye to me, and it's filled. So the Clark Museum is an old Gilded Age mansion filled with a bunch of paintings, and they collected impressionists, right? And it's an hour from my house. And but you, and so you're walking through it, and it's like there's just stuff everywhere. Winslow Homer's next to, you know, the, the major impressionists and on and on and on. And, you know, Aikens, like major American artists, whatever. There's a ton of art that's iconic or semi-iconic right there as if it's in your living room, but also displayed the way it often was in such homes, which is, you know, just tons of stuff sort of higgledy-piggledy on top of one another. And yet your eye immediately concentrates, mine concentrates on this painting. It's a handful of four or five I actually have it in front of me. It's four or five, I think, onions and then a head of garlic on a, on a cloth. And it's very much a you know, classic still life. But with just ex- there's extraordinary motion and life and vividness to the direction of the brush strokes, which is fascinating. The delicacy of the skins and the light on the onion skins. You really see these onions in some very felt and real way, semi-visionary way, you get that meditative visionariness of the of the great still life. It's just I love that painting and it it 
it took two or three visits to become aware of the fact that my eye returned to it and then to think about why and why concentrating on that banal object. I mean, we all have seen still lives of apples and pears and um, floral arrangements and on and on and on. I mean, there's certain, but I don't, is there another in the canon well-known still life of onions and garlic? This thing that they play a central role. Like it's like like a certain kind of evening just begins with chopping onion and garlic, right? I mean, it's like, you know, and there it is made contemplatively whole for your, you know, I don't know. I just, I love, I love that painting, but I'm now, I want to turn the mic back to you guys, but I'm so, I'm so touched and honored by that coincidence, Julia. Thank you for telling me. What a funny coincidence. Dana, what's your recurring visited artwork? I mean, I have a few. I think the one that came first to mind is one I've probably talked about before on the show, maybe when we were talking about um, the, the Met. I don't know if we had ever had a segment at the Met or a bonus about the Met. I seem to remember naming this painting once before, but there's one in the Metropolitan Museum of Art that I always try to visit when I'm there, just because it's almost like visiting a person, and there's such an intensity to this portrait. It's a portrait by Velázquez, the Spanish painter, of uh, Juan de Pareja is the name of the subject, who, mm-hmm. um, in reading about it, please don't care cancel me is somewhat problematic because this was actually the assistant and the, and at some point the slave of Velasquez. But months after this painting was made, Velasquez signed a contract of manumission that freed this assistant painter. And the, the Met also has some paintings by Juan de Pareja made somewhat in the style of, of Velasquez from a decade or so later. But the way that Velasquez p- paints Juan de Pareja is just so beautiful and intimate that it's hard to believe he wasn't in love with him. In fact, I just I just Googled before talking about this, is Velasquez gay? Which is not the kind of thing you would really know about a 17th century <laughs> Spaniard. <laughs> but there is no sign that he was. But there is so much... Uh, so much intimacy and eroticism even in the way this this figure looks at the camera I was going to say at the at the painter and and out at the viewer as well and you know it just has those deep blacks and I love Velasquez in general he's one of my favorite painters and there's so much um, shadow and chiaroscuro and, and just beauty in the in the way that this sitter is painted so the Juan de Pareja portrait in the Met would would certainly be one I was also interested and Julia I want to hear your your museum object but I also want for round two if we could just very quickly mention something that isn't in a museum that we visit I guess Steve had his sculpture garden, so so that's one for him. But you know, just a feature of the landscape that you go back to, or the urban landscape, because it it brings you some kind of artistic satisfaction. For me, my museum going for the last ten years has been so dictated by my children, and so there aren't a ton of. I haven't spent a ton of time lingering in galleries looking at exactly the thing that moves me. I've taken my children a few times to see Metropolis 2, which is the Christopher Burden work at LACMA that's like a gigantic cityscape full of cars that is at first exciting and then sort of soothing and then kind of irritating and then kind of wonderful in its complexity. And it it's, it is a work that I think merits contemplation and return visits because it um, is both like an homage to and a critique of urbanism and kind of the the city as an endeavor in a cool way. Um, and that piece is near some Richard Serra um, forms. 
I think, I think that one is called Torqued Loop. Um, and I've also visited the, some Richard Serra's at Dia Beacon several times I've spent, uh, and I've also seen some in several other museums. So, and they have a similar feel that, that series of work by him. Um, so those are some ones I visited on a repeat basis, but they're a little bit determined by like, what can you muster the kids to get out and do on a Saturday afternoon? Um, in the world, you know, I'm struck by the by how much for me the answer is in the landscape rather than in kind of the sculpture, the object. I mean, to me, just the the, the built environment of New York as a as a magical and strange thing is its own wow structure to contemplate. And then within that, the Brooklyn Bridge is is its own work of art for me, like walking over it, driving over it, driving over the Manhattan Bridge and looking at it. Um, it is a wonder and it is a beauty and it does make you think about human endeavor and um, connection and human impact on the world in, in an extraordinary way. In Los Angeles, strangely enough, the thing I have that relationship to is this very specific view of the Santa Monica Mountains that you see coming up a particular street in my neighborhood that just feels deeply beautiful and deeply anchoring in my West Coast life and just the joy of a life nestled among mountains, which I love and is not one of the virtues of life in New York City. Um, you know, I, I think I may have described this on the show before, but there's that Wordsworth poem, My Heart Leaps Up When I Behold the Rainbow in the Sky. And um, I feel that, like my heart leaps up when I see that specific view of the mountain. Of like, oh my God, so amazing to be alive on this earth. Um, and it may perhaps it's odd to compare a mountain to a work of human art, but <laughs> that is the thing in my current uh, environment that, that makes me feel that way. I, I would also like to hear you guys talk though about your relationship to works of art in your home. I have, you know, mostly in my home posters and photos and family memorabilia up on the walls and weird old prints of birds I've collected over the years, but I do have several pieces of art made by dear family friends. I'm looking actually right now at a beautiful, um, piece of art that's sort of half painting, half sculpture made by my godfather, an artist named Thad Beale, um, that I get to look at every day while I work. And, um, you know, I think there, there is sort of a like unseemliness about owning art. Like maybe all art should be in a public place where everyone can see it, but having that kind of personal relationship with art that people, you know, and love have made in your own home is also, um, part of structuring the beauty that your eye beholds, I think. Yeah, I've certainly in, in the apartment where I live, you know, art by people who live in the house is, is up everywhere. In fact, there's probably more art up by people who live in the house, not me, but my daughter and my partner than by people who are actual, you know, artists um, that we chose to frame and, and put up on the wall. And uh, I'm not really the person who curates that collection, which makes it even more fun to watch different um, drawings from different periods or, you know, constructions from my daughter at different ages cycle through on the walls. Uh, I would mention that there's one, um, I guess, professional, although he is what used to be called an outsider artist who is on our walls, who I always love to return to and look at and see new things in, which is Felipe Jesus Gonsalves, who is this... 
yeah, as I say, self-taught artist who did not make art to be seen by other people. He was one of those mysterious artists who after his death, it was discovered that his garage was completely full of these creations he had made. And if you don't know who Felipe Jesus Gonzalez is, just Google him and look at his insane collages and his story because it's really incredible. He, um, he worked most of his life in Philadelphia in a cigar factory. He was born in Cuba, but, um, you know, eventually immigrated to, to Philadelphia. And so a lot of this art that he made and kept in his garage is is cigar labels. Like he'll often frame an image in these, you know, the labels that he must have taken home from his work at the cigar factory. So it'll say, you know, Havana rolled, whatever, kind of around the frame. And then inside the frame is just this insane collage of found bits from newspapers, from playing cards, from cartoons. And uh, he was a brilliant collagist in the way that he put it together. He's now a very hot artist to collect, but because my in-laws who love folk art happened to live in Philadelphia, which is where this cache of art was was discovered, um, they kind of got in on the ground floor in Consalvos and got some of his stuff when it was relatively affordable and gave some of them to us, which is a great honor and a great treat because you can always find some new bizarre little thing within a Consalvos collage. So he is somebody whose rabbit hole is really fun to jump down. Yeah, no, similarly, there we have a bunch of stuff up on our walls that, that, that sort of suffers from familiarity. And then every now and then your attention is arrested on the item and, and you see it again you know, for the first time and, and it includes art by my older daughter who was a painter sort of from the age of practically zero um, up until she went to college and then became completely obsessed with um, studying history and sort of hasn't done a lot of studio time. But I have to say, and I know I'm partial, I do stop and I think about her work because it's, she both did, you know, traditional brushwork on canvas, you know, oil on canvas um, but she also was from an early age really interested in collage and kind of conceptual works, including, you know, like kind of getting, she God, went on the internet. She was so young, like 12. She went on the internet and with our permission, ordered a, a female form mannequin, which she then totally, and she was an out lesbian at that age, right? So she was sort of deconstructing the female form, like dividing it up and kind of amputating it in this way that wasn't gruesome, but just sort of breaking it down into component parts and then covering it in collage magazine cutouts that she'd found getting off of like uh, eBay, old sort of, you know, virtually free, you know, old vintage magazines and these images of women onto it or whatever. And it's just like, we still have it. And it's, it's, I only look at it occasionally, but it's sort of in a you know, room with a treadmill, I'm embarrassed to say, because there's no obvious place to put it. And I just think, and I know she's my daughter, like I don't, this is not, I'm trying not to humble brag. That's not the point of it. The point is really like, like how did I let that become invisible, right? It's this extraordinary statement by my daughter seven years ago of who she was and how she was thinking about gender, you know, and, and she just has a lot of, not a lot, but I mean, many, many pieces like that. And I want to find a way to sort of display and highlight them instead of having them sort of semi-disappear into semi-storage. And, you know, we had another artist friend who kind of started to break a little bit early in his career. And then, I don't know, through a crazy turn of events that, that it, it, the trajectory wasn't sort of linear, but his work is, is extraordinary in a way. And, 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 and 
like, like deeply reflective on exactly sort of this issue when it comes to familiar architectural forms in public life, like fast food restaurants and the, the sort of architecture of fast food and logos and, and how they're seeded into our consciousness and landscape. And, and, you know, I think that's the funny thing, Julia, about art in some way, especially modern art, especially postmodern art, is that because it has this conceptual aspect, because it involves very often jarring discontinuities and attempts to sort of unfreeze our gaze, right, and, 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 and get us to think in a totally unfamiliar thought pattern. And yet it goes up on our walls and disappears into our consciousness and becomes furniture, right? It's like I think fighting against that tendency to absorb what was meant to not be shocking in any puerile way, but was meant to be sort of dis dislocating or reorienting to our consciousness into this invisibility, the sort of pleasant invisibility of home furnishing, right? Is the challenge of art that one owns and has at hand. Right. You don't, you don't really want art to become decor. You don't want it to match. Yeah. You want it to still be art and to kind of prod you and push you. And I always think Dana of the, of the term, I associate with your household, which is that you, you you like to go to museums for an hour for an eye scrub, that it's just sort of seeing things fresh kind of makes you see everything fresh. Um, and ideally, the art in your home is still functioning as art and not as a like color coordinated throw pillow. Um, and that's always interesting, I think, to think about and how you decide what to what to put up on a wall. Um, all right. Well, thank you so much to our listener for the question. Thank you, Slate Plus listeners, for supporting Slate and its journalism and for supporting our show and listening to it. Have a good holiday season, and we will see you soon.